at its core, what makes wargaming different than gaming is that there's this buy-in to the game that you are not playing the game to win a game, but that the interaction that you have inside this kind of stimulated environment represents how you would behave in real life. Hello and welcome to The Risk Calculus, a podcast from the Berkeley Risk and Security Lab. I'm Andrew Reddy, the lab's founder and your host for this series on wargaming. Over the last four episodes, we've approached wargaming through various lenses. We've talked about the history of this method from antiquity through the Cold War, how it's been applied to different problems from nuclear use to cybersecurity, and how these historical games have influenced how we think about risk and strategy. We've also looked at game design, what's in a game, and why these choices matter. In this final episode, I want to focus on the value and variety of wargaming today. Specifically, we asked three questions. What does the field of wargaming look like today? What does it need going forward? And how can you play some of these games with us? Today, we're delighted to be joined by Dr. Jackie Schneider, a Hoover Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the director of the Hoover Wargaming and Crisis Simulation Initiative, and an affiliate with Stanford Center for International Security and Cooperation. Jackie, of course, your experience is particularly unique given that you started wargaming in the defense community and have now been at the forefront of bringing the method to the academy. I would just like us to start by kind of talking through how you think about using wargaming in your work. Yeah, so the benefit of working at a place like the Naval War College is you learn, I would say, probably the best Department of Defense ways to run a war game. You get very immersed in the intricacies of building scenarios, building out players, the program management part of wargaming. But the program management part of wargaming that places like the Naval War College do so well sometimes means that it can be difficult to do the social science part of wargaming. Mm -hmm. That's the ability to control the way you build scenarios and pick players and execute the game to try and find, I'm going to say kind of a nasty word in political science, causal relationships or get <laughs> close. Yeah. Get close to causal relationships. So when I left the Naval War College and came to Hoover and Stanford, it allowed me the ability to try and take what was a pretty amazing learning experience at the Naval War College and try and apply social scientific methods. So I generally ask questions where we don't have a lot of good data because it either hasn't happened or because mm -hmm. they're horrific scenarios like nuclear war. And so we're glad we don't have the data. And so um, I turned to war games to try and answer some of the questions within that kind of novel scenario space. And what I've been trying to do is to introduce these two disparate, I'm going to say fields, but they're not really fields, these disparate communities to each other, which is on one hand, defense wargaming, which comes with probably a century of knowledge about what works and what doesn't in terms of games, and then introduce that to social science methodologies, leaning on you know the work of experimentalists, as well as people who think through process tracing and qualitative methods, and try and marry the two so that we run rich, evocative, interesting games, but we're able to do it in a way that controls as much as we can for bias. Yeah, I really like that you noted both the kind of the experimental approaches, but also the more case studies, right? Like board games do provide us that really rich case data that you could go and, you know, use for 
telling stories about how introducing variation in one particular game changes a particular result. And then, of course, couldn't agree with you more in terms of where this method is useful is where we don't have, you know, a large amount of data already to go and use. So you've kind of already started addressing this, but are there research problems that you think war games are particularly well suited to? You mentioned a nuclear use case. Are there geographical contexts where you think they're particularly interesting or other types of technological problems? So I think the logical subject matters are things that have to do with emerging technology and conflict, the kind of the futures world, or Mm -hmm. for technology that we really don't see used a lot in conflict, nuclear weapons being a really great example. So these are things like artificial intelligence, cybersecurity, hypersonic missiles. We're trying to understand how systems that we haven't seen fielded a lot might influence combat or might influence the chance for war. Because the chance for war is not something that we can stimulate very nicely in a survey experiment, war games are probably a much better way of generating data. But I think that's like just the first logical place. I'm Mm -hmm. actually really interested and how games can help us understand human behaviors in a lot of different types of situations. So not just conflict or war, but thinking about human behaviors and how they affect democratic movements, how they affect decisions about economics. I think actually there's a great extension of work that can be done using war games to understand core questions about human behavior and group dynamics in all sorts of different social processes. Yeah, I like that. I mean, do you feel as if almost wargaming is kind of a pejorative label that's been given to the field and it doesn't actually need to be wargaming, it can just be kind of gaming methods writ large? Gaming is a better way to describe it than wargaming because I think wargaming takes it down a particular pathway. And our initiative is wargaming and crisis simulation because mm-hmm. um, our director said, hey, I love this, but Generally, a lot of people think about wargaming as only wars. And if we extend it to crisis simulations, then you're thinking about something beyond just conflict. But if you call it just gaming, now you have to differentiate between so many other different types of games. And I think at its core, what makes wargaming different than gaming is that there's this buy-in to the game that you are not playing the game to win a game, but that the interaction that you have inside this simulated environment represents how you would behave in real life. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the difference between a game for fun and this war gaming thing, which is about understanding behaviors in a way that simulates real life. I think there's an interesting story. Like if you go back to Kriegspiel, one of the first war games, yeah, Kriegspiel actually evolved from a series of kind of social games. So people were playing these games as a kind of parlor game. It was the upper middle class elite were playing games. But then they realized, oh, what if I actually make these rules somewhat similar to how things happen actually in combat? Yeah, geography. Yeah. Yeah. And they brought in these people who were military experts and they got them to build these really complicated rule sets that were basically these set of beliefs about how war would actually play out. And then they got it in front of these senior Prussian leaders. And this is when, you know, the senior Prussian leader says, my God, this is not just a game. This is war. And but it's because war games, they introduce this level of vividness and reality that invest their players in a way that make it more like real life and less like you're playing a game. Perfect. 
So I'm wondering if we can, you know, move the conversation to something that's a little bit more concrete in terms of how you've actually built war games to study a series of really important challenges, cyber escalation, for example, with your international crisis war game. How do you think about the design process for the ICWG or another war game that might be one of your favorites? So I start with war game design, like any social science research design. What is my core question? What mm -hmm. am I trying to understand? And based on that research question, I'm going to, to build out my game. Now, this first game series, the International Crisis War Game Series, we had a research question. We were trying to understand how cyber operations affected nuclear stability and specifically how cyber capabilities to exploit nuclear command control and communications would affect decisions to use nuclear weapons at all or earlier or to take different counterforce campaigns. So in order to design that, we needed to build a scenario that allowed us to control a little bit about our variables. And so once I've determined what my variables are, then I go into designing a scenario and a game design that allows me to look at those specific variables. I know a lot of people, when they start a war game, they want to start with scenario. And I would say that's where you really get messed up because you start mm -hmm. building all these details and they end up making it really fun to play, but may make it difficult for you to pull out those variables and look at those relationships afterwards. So we actually built it kind of in a quasi-experimental way. So we had controls, we introduced different treatments based on the cyber capabilities and cyber exploits. But in order to do that, we also made a lot of things really simple. We didn't have adjudication in between moves. We made it a hypothetical scenario. We had groups, but they were relatively small. So we, we made choices that gave up some level of interaction in order to be able to control because our goal with the game was to run it as many times as possible to try and understand how iteration and heterogeneity in our population could help us move towards generalizability or at least being able to say this is not just a behavior in one game but that this is a behavior that we see over a lot of different games over a long period of time and a lot of different characteristics of the population. I would love to pick up on that point around your design being abstract. It's something that we chatted with Ellie Bartels at Rand about as well. What drove that choice to be abstract from your perspective? We did this for a few reasons. One is we were talking about cyber and nuclear, and we find that those are two subjects where people are generally, if they've had some sort of experience working in these fields, they might be less likely to open up in a real, real world scenario because they don't want to reveal classified information that they may know. We also, the first iteration of this game was in a track two between two nations who have had a series of nuclear crises between each other. And we felt like if we have an abstract or hypothetical scenario, they're more likely to speak freely than if we give them a real world scenario. We also wanted to generalize beyond a specific incident. So our research question was not about how does cyber affect nuclear stability in a US China scenario? Mm -hmm. It was how do these variables in general, separate of the context in which they're introduced, affect the nuclear dynamic. And so because of that, we thought abstraction was the right choice. Now, there's two critiques. One is if you pick an abstraction that you think is abstract, but it's still 
leads people to think of a specific scenario, then you're not getting the goodness of abstraction, right? You're not abstract enough. Um, the second potential problem with abstraction is that players don't connect with the game in a way in which they are acting the way they would in real life. I.e., we are capturing general reactions to the scenario, but those general reactions are not specific enough to help us understand how players would react in a U.S. China scenario or in a Russia scenario. And, you know, I think that's a problem that anybody who uses abstract scenarios is going to have. And so you just have to be clear about that when you're talking about how your findings indicate what the limits are about whether they are predicting future behavior. And what did you end up finding? Did the cyber capabilities end up impacting nuclear stability? Yes, but in a counterintuitive way. So we actually went into this game, we had a series of hypotheses, but the hypothesis that I thought was going to play out was that cyber vulnerabilities would make players feel insecure and lead them to using their nuclear weapons earlier. Mm -hmm. That's not what happened. <laughs> in fact, what we found was that players tend to underestimate their cyber vulnerabilities and overestimate their cyber capabilities. So we found that what led to more nuclear instability was actually the introduction of cyber exploits. So telling a team that they have a capability to attack the opposite team's nuclear command control and communication. That would lead states to take more aggressive counterforce campaigns, mm. to preemptively put their own forces on nuclear alert, and then states that had the vulnerability but not the capability, what we found is they were more likely to move to automation or kind of this use of dead hand or lower levels of command to actually make nuclear decisions. The implication was that it was overconfidence in cyber that led to, uh, that could lead to nuclear instability and accidents. I really appreciate you taking us through kind of one of your example game designs and demonstrating how it's contributing to kind of an active debate that's happening inside the scholarly literature. I think it's one of the best examples that we have of linking the wargaming method to the way that we think about doing this work as scholars. So Jackie, what explains from your perspective why we're really focused on this method today? There's a few things that were happening that led to where we are in war games. One is not happening in, in the academic realm. One was what happened in the Department of Defense, which was a focus under Deputy Secretary of Defense Robert Work to reinvigorate mm -hmm. wargaming. And one of the initiatives that he was pushing for was the use of meta-analysis of games he was trying to build a wargaming collection that would allow the Department of Defense to look at all the games that are occurring across the Defense Department and try and make generalizations across games. He also invested in different methodologies, different ways of thinking about using games. And I think that provided an impetus inside the Department of Defense, but it also actually trickled down a little bit into the think tank community and also into academia. At the same time that that was occurring, which is kind of at the same time that the new, he had a strategy, the third offset. So it's right around this time that all these things are occurring. And I think at the same time, academia is honing its experimental method. And so you have a rise in an understanding about how to use experiments within international relations. But at the same time, the experiments are becoming a little bit less satisfying. You're having problems with 
thinking about the population of people or the sample of people that are taking mm-hmm. their surveys. You're, there's a lot of critique that's occurring about like, do these survey experiments actually represent how defense decision makers think? Can they say anything about international security and international relations? And I think those two come together also at a time, give a little credit to bridging the gap and people like Jim Goldgeier, who were actively building communities of scholars that were interested in doing work that, that bridged this gap between policy and academia. I think you have young scholars coming up like you, Andrew, Eric Lynn Greenberg, the archival work of Reed Pauley. And that led to a series of games that were coming out around the same time that were all trying to use this wargaming method as a method, leaning on both experimental work and qualitative work and saying that war games were going to present data in a way that could help us answer questions that were we had trouble generating data. So I think these two worlds fed upon each other and there wasn't like one particular moment. Mm-hmm. There wasn't one particular catalyst, but it was the infusion of interest, scholarship, new thinkers, and all of those coming together. Yeah, perfect. Well, I think it's it's been almost a decade, I think, since Robert Work's memo outlined why we needed to kind of have a renaissance in wargaming methods. As you kind of reflect on that decade, are there other lessons that you think that we've learned as a field or are still learning? Well, I want to say that I think there's a big difference in what the Department of Defense mm-hmm. is learning or thinks it's learning in war games and academics. Academics in general, the community is always moving forward with thinking about how they use data. And so you see that thinking about using war games as data, I feel like that's maturing at a perhaps a, a quicker rate <laughs> than what's happening at the Department of Defense. Probably because we don't have a lot of people that have high stakes in the game. Mm. So you're building a brand new, potentially set of communities. The bigger trouble in academia is figuring out how this method is different or the same or better or not as good as existing data methods. I think we're learning a lot in that way. So I will say when I started working in this particular war game series, I thought that my value add was going to be quantitative. But in running the games many, many times, I'd be able to actually say something quantitatively that would help us move wargaming to the next level. When I started writing the paper, I realized that even though I had run this game with 580 players over three years, I had teams of four to six. I only really had an N of about 115 yeah. mm-hmm. I had for treatment groups. So now I'm looking at, you know, basically groups of 20 to 30 that I'm comparing. There's actually not a really great quantitative thing here. Basically, I would describe my work as a bit of qualitative plus, because what I realized was I had these numbers, which was helpful for framing and understanding the outcomes, but they didn't really explain why we got to the outcomes. And it was Mm -hmm. the qualitative the how people filled out their response plans, all the extra information they gave in surveys that actually was the value add of the war game. And so I'm coming around more and more to how games provide that, not just how we can use games to provide more ecologically or externally valid quantitative measures, but also how the richness of games and that like putting people in a room together for, you know, three hours and then seeing what they say, how that actually can give some really amazing insight into human behaviors. 
I really like that. I mean, obviously correlations are great, but you do need to get the deep conversation to get at the why. Uh, you know, I think that's a really important distinction that you're drawing there. And, and we'll kind of see how the field moves forward from there as well. Also, as you kind of reflect on your experience in the in the field as one of the academic pioneers in this space, are there any kind of notes of caution around either how we're using it inside the ivory tower or how are you seeing wargaming methods being used in the defense community? Well, we can save the defense community for the second part because that could take a while. <laughs> So I think on the on the academic side, there's some core questions about what makes a good game that we still haven't answered. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, one game that I reviewed, they didn't even send any of the game material. That's not okay, right? Like, so that's progression. We need to think more about how we look at the entirety of your game materials. I think that games are expensive and take a lot of time. And that can be a big limitation. And so we need to find ways to be able to decrease that cost so that you have more gaming. There Mm -hmm. is no magic number of iterations or players. We don't know when we've run the game enough times to stop. I think we also don't know when games are interactive enough. We have not found a way to measure or convey how decision-making in games is different than decision-making in surveys, for example. Mm-hmm. These are all, I wouldn't say they're words of caution, but I would say that these are things that we as academics need to better understand. How do you measure buy-in from players? How do you understand how the group functions? What are the dynamics of the group and how you introduce them into the game? These are all core questions about war game design that we really don't have answers for. So I wouldn't say that's a caution. I would say, I hope we work on that. And I would say the academics have to work on it because the DOD will not. What the DOD is kind of designed for is to build games that make the person who are paying for the game generally happy. How, how do you make someone generally happy about a game? Well, two things, you get to an outcome that the sponsor would prefer. And two, you do it in a way that's generally enjoyable, right? Like, so the primary way that you're evaluating whether it's a good game for a Department of Defense game is how do the players feel? Mm-hmm. And I think that's coming back to player buy-in, but there's not like time within that DOD wargaming planning process to ask these questions about, okay, we need player buy-in, but at what level? And how does that affect bias? And so a lot of the core questions about what makes games good are just never going to be answered in the Department of Defense, who is also the primary user of war games. And so I think academia can look at those type of questions and that will actually end up changing probably the way games are evaluated by the Department of Defense. Well, that's a really nice segue. You know, I'm interested in what you think the field needs to move forward. I mean, obviously, all the technologies that you were mentioning before, which are good fodder for substantive areas of research to kind of apply wargaming methods, some of those same technologies are also offering new ways to actually perform wargaming as well. So I'm just kind of wondering, what's your sense of where the field might move in the next five, 10 years? So, I mean, the first thing is, as you highlighted, I really feel like we only ask almost the most expected questions out of war games. And I I hope that they move from something that is entirely looking at war and look at larger social processes. So that's where I hope the field moves. I also see a lot of goodness in bringing in younger academics, graduate students, assistant professors, people who are kind of coming up in their career. But the problem is running games is expensive and difficult to do. And so we need resources for young scholars I mean, if you think running a survey experiment is expensive, <laughs> games are, are extraordinarily difficult to do. 
and to do well. I think the biggest difficulty in games and the hardest thing for young scholars is getting the sample because you either have to pay the right sample to participate and either sitting in a room for a long period of time that, you know, that's an honorarium Mm -hmm. or that's paying to get them there or that's paying for their food and entertainment. You know, you have to incentivize and sample becomes extremely expensive. So if we can find ways to help younger scholars be able to generate their sample and to give them some of the administrative support to be able to run the party planning part of games, I think we'll find that they're very innovative when it comes to game design. And then if we can build incentives for scholars to do methodological work, so not just running games, but also looking across games at what works best, doing the same kind of work that you would see in the survey world or the experiment world where we have done enough analysis across surveys or across experiments to understand what works better and what leads to substantial bias or limits generalizability. But in order to do that, you have to have a place where scholars can publish um, and potentially to have fellowships or some sort of space so that scholars can take time away from just running games and actually look at the methodology. And of course, you're running one of the initiatives that I think will make that type of meta-analysis easier and also contribute to building a library of where folks that might be interested can actually pick up and start to play these games. So can you give us a little sense of your vision for the archive that you're putting together that will hopefully serve as a repository for games across the country and across the globe? Yeah, we're really excited. We're putting together a collection of war games and war gaming materials inside the Hoover Library and Archive. And we're approaching this in a little bit of a different way than some of the existing collections. So actually, Andrew, it is shocking how much wargaming stuff is out there. There's a lot of individually curated websites that all have links to different types of games. But what you realize when you start looking at all these games is that nothing's super curated. It's very, very difficult to look across games. So we're building our collection with the focus on data first. So I think of it as a database, not just the collection, building out the metadata and the technological infrastructure to be able to look across games extensively, methodologically, to be able to download games and replicate games. But this is actually a a bigger leap forward than I realized because there's actually a pretty strong divide or stovepipe between library and archives and the big data world. And so we're trying to bridge those worlds and building out this collection. The other thing that we're doing, and this is our focus in the first three years, is trying to bring in as many historical games as possible. That way we can look across games to understand how games have historically influenced big choices have been made in foreign policy and domestic policy for the last few centuries. So bringing in all these materials so that people can run games, people can analyze trends. People can look at specific games to understand how those games influence historical decisions and ultimately, hopefully, to, to make games better. Yeah. And you've got big supporters over here across the Bay in, the, in that endeavor as well. So beyond folks following the development of that archive and database at Hoover, just a last question from us. If you were to give advice to somebody just starting out in the field, where would you send folks to kind of learn more, whether it's a particular article or a book that you found particularly inspirational as you kind of launch your journey in wargaming? Well, this is horrible. I'll I'll promote myself, but I'm going to promote my co-authors more. 
So Perfect. I've been really inspired by working with Eric Lynn Greenberg at MIT and Reed Pauley at Brown. We have a piece in the European Journal of International Relations that talks about how to use war games in terms of designing war games to generate data, and also how to think about war gaming data as a piece of novel data. And I think it's useful, you know, Eric Reed and I came up with a bit of a how-to to say, okay, you want to run a war game. Here are some steps and questions that you need to ask when thinking about the types of rules, the types of players, the way you collect data. So I'm going to put a little plug in for myself in that paper because I think it can be helpful for people thinking about how to use data and how to design games. And then lately, I've been doing a lot of work thinking about how games influence foreign policy and their role in history. And I just want to recommend an oldie but a goodie, The Bomb and the Computer mm-hmm. by Andrew Wilson. And then a new one I just bought, War Games, The Secret World of the Creators and Policymakers Rehearsing World War III Today. And this is by a guy named Thomas Allen. And it has a lot of the more contemporary war games that have been run in the Department of Defense. Perfect. That does sound great. Jackie, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time. We'll include your uh, suggested literature in the show notes. And we'll also post a list on Viracel's website. Although we've reached the end of our first mini-series, this is only the beginning of the risk calculus. In future seasons, we'll be digging into other aspects of our work here at BRSL, from industrial policy to AI regulation. And for those of you that have made it the full way through the season, you'll know that we've left plenty of meat on the wargaming bone, so I'm sure we'll have a second series on wargaming as well. I hope you'll join us for that. Thank you, Dr. Jackie Schneider, for joining us. Thanks to Andre Anderson and Citrus, the recording studio hosts. And special thanks to our amazing producer, Jane Darby-Menton. And finally, to all of you for tuning in. Until next time, I'm Andrew Reddy. You've been listening to The Risk Calculus. Um, Obviously, the tree guys are here. (laughs) No worries. Uh, And I don't know how to make my dog stop barking because he is legitimately barking at people at our house. Um, It's okay. Should we give him like a second? Let's come back and try this again.